I like to win. Don't you? I like to win, whether it's cheering for one of my sports teams or whether it's a family game of Uno. I like to win. And we all like to win. Why is it that someone would become an Olympian, spend four years of their lives training and sacrificing so that they can stand on the top of a podium and get a, a medal? Why do they do that? The thrill of victory. They want to win. And we see many different indications of that in our lives and in those around us. We are people that like to win. So I want to talk to you today about victory. What victory looks like, spiritually speaking, in your life and in my life. And more specifically, how you and I are called to fight for victory. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We continue our study through this Old Testament book, 1 Samuel 17. We'll begin reading in verse 38. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now, our revival is kicking off tonight, uh, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Every service will be at that time. And I thought about what to do with the Sunday morning sermon. And I really chewed on it, pondered on it, prayed about it, thought through it. And I was going to do like a revival preparation type sermon. But then I began to think about our theme for our revival. Our, our theme is going to be God's power. As a matter of fact, we have a verse that we talk about every service related to God's power. And hopefully at the end of this revival, we will all be encouraged of and reminded of God's power. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, what better example of the power of God than David and Goliath? So we're preaching the next text in 1 Samuel, but this is a revival preparation sermon. And I think you'll see that as we work our way uh, through it together this morning. 1 Samuel 17, verse 38, the Bible says, Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Notice that he approached the Philistine. Let's pray together. Lord, we pause to give you glory, and we pause to ask for your help. Lord, we believe with all of our heart that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. We need you to work in our midst. We need you, Lord, if this time is going to be spiritually, eternally profitable. So, Lord, would you just move in our midst in mighty, mighty ways. Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to, to change us. We want you to have free reign in this place and free reign in our lives as we surrender to you. And we expect you to do something in us. God, I pray you would use this sermon this morning to help us understand what it means to fight for victory and to show us our need for your power in our lives. 
Lord, I ask you to establish my steps in your word today. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as we worked our way through 1 Samuel, we've seen that the first king of Israel dropped the ball, spiritually speaking, rebelled against God. So the Lord decided to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to a new king, a man after his own heart, uh, a young man named David. And we get to chapter 17, we see that Saul is still functioning as king. David had not taken the throne yet. And in this story, we see the Philistine army squared off against the Israelite army. And we see that this giant named Goliath walks out to the middle of the field between the armies and challenges one of the Israelites to come and fight him. And he said, if I win, then Israel becomes the slaves of the Philistines. If you win, then the Philistines will become your slaves. And everyone's intimidated by this giant, and no one comes out to fight him. Until David comes on the scene. He comes to bring his brother some supplies. He sees this uh, arrogant uh, Philistine boasting in the midst of the two armies. He says, listen, he's, he's mocking God. He's mocking God's armies. If no one else will go fight him, I will go fight him. And we learned last week this major truth. We learned that fear keeps us from living for God's glory, but faith propels us to attempt great things for God. Fear keeps us from living for God's glory, Faith propels us to attempt great things for God. So that was kind of the lead up to the battle. This morning we're going to actually study the battle between David and uh, Goliath. And we're going to see David fighting for victory. And I think there's some principles uh, that we see in David's life, how he fights, that apply to us. Because you and I need to understand that if we're going to have victory in our lives, we have to fight. There's no victory without fighting. You see, we need to understand that the Christian life is warfare. It's warfare. We are opposed by the enemy. No wonder Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why did he tell us we need armor? Because we are engaged in a conflict. We are engaged in a battle. The Christian life, living for Jesus in the midst of a secular culture. Living for Jesus when the enemy is, is coming after you is not easy. We've got to fight for victory. Secondly, raising a family is warfare. Do you realize that? You try to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And again, you're surrounded by a, an ungodly culture. As you are bombarded by the enemy, it is difficult to raise a godly family. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Satan is a lion, a fierce lion that wants to destroy our lives. And if that's true of you, and if that's true of me, it's also true of our children, right? I mean, don't, don't, make, a, don't make a mistake. Satan hates your kids. And Satan wants to destroy them. And if we're going to raise godly kids with a hostile enemy in the midst of a hostile culture, we have got to learn to fight. 
Striving for a godly marriage is warfare. Do you know that? Satan wants to destroy your marriage. Think about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27. It's a, it's a, a principle for interpersonal relationships, and it certainly applies to the interpersonal relationship, the relationship of marriage. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul writes, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Don't let your anger control you. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, if you have conflict with a loved one, if you have conflict with your spouse, deal with it quickly. Because if you don't, if you let the sun go down on your anger, look what happens. He says, do not give the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity in the Greek language is literally the word place or foothold. So, in marriage, if you don't deal with conflict quickly, then you are giving the devil a foothold in your marriage so that he can wreak havoc. It's like this. If you don't deal with conflict and tension in your marriage, it's like opening up the front door of your home and saying, devil, come on in. Have your way in my home. Have your way in my marriage. It's warfare. Dealing with Satan and pursuing a godly marriage, a strong relationship is warfare. You are opposed. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. We've got to learn to fight for our marriages. Can I tell you this? Making disciples in a local church is warfare. We're called to make disciples, right? Great commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that end of Matthew chapter 28. We're supposed to share the gospel, lead people to Christ, and when they become followers of Christ, we teach them what Christ commanded, help them to grow in Christ, so they in turn can reach out to others. That's discipleship. And it is not easy to make disciples. As a matter of fact, over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, here's what Paul told his young protege, Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He said in chapter 2, verse 2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here's your role, Timothy, your pastor. You've learned the gospel. You've learned the doctrines of the Christian faith. You take that which you've learned. You pass it on to others. And you teach those that you're passing it on to how they can, in turn, pass it on to others. That's discipleship. But look at the metaphor that Paul uses in the very next verse to explain how difficult discipleship is. He says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Why would Paul use the imagery of a soldier? Because making disciples leading people to Christ, helping them to grow, investing in others, is warfare. Satan does not give up ground easily. Satan does not want to release his hold on people's lives. And when you come marching into someone's circle of influence with the gospel, you better expect that you are going to be opposed. Look what he goes on to say to Paul. No, or Paul says to Timothy, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Making disciples, being a church that reaches people with the gospel is warfare. And we've got to learn to fight. You see, we need to fight for victory. So wait, are you overplaying this 
this idea of fighting. Well, think about what Paul said, and probably his last words we have written, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. That's how Paul explained his life. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Paul understood what we need to understand, that the Christian life is warfare. And we've got to learn to fight for victory. Now at this point, we look at David. David teaches us some things about fighting for victory. Some things we can take and apply to our own lives. I want you to see five aspects of victory that are found in this passage. Number one, I want you to see the victory sought. The victory sought. There in verse 40 it says, end of that verse, that David approached the Philistine. I don't know of many more inspirational verses in the Bible than that one. Here's this giant, 9 feet, 9 inches tall, 126 pounds of armor, a long spear with a head that weighed about 15 or 16 pounds, trained from his youth to fight a fierce warrior, and David, this shepherd boy, approaches the giant. Goliath was used to everyone running from him. And all of a sudden, someone is coming to him. We see that David here is seeking victory over Goliath. Now, there's a couple aspects of that. First of all, I want you to see that David applied his skill and gifting in the fight. Look in verse 38. Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So he puts on Saul's armor. Remember, Saul was head and shoulders above every other man of Israel. Probably the armor was ill-fitting. David had never worn armor like that. It felt uncomfortable to him. As I was studying this passage this week, I thought about my uh, first time playing Little League tackle football. It was my first year playing and my only year I played. And, and I remember the first day, the coach passed out the pads. I put on a helmet. I put on shoulder pads and the pants, all that kind of stuff. And I could, I just, I could hardly walk. I, it just felt awkward, I, and I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And there's this guy who had been playing for years, and his name was Eric Slaughter. I still remember it. And Eric decided he wanted to hit before practice started. I didn't know what that meant. But all of a sudden, he came running at me and just knocked me on my back. I couldn't even walk. I felt awkward. That's how David felt. He had all this stuff on. He couldn't even move right. So he he takes it off and he goes back to what he knows. Look at the next verse. Verse 40. He took his stick, his shepherd's staff. He was used to that. Took it in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand. Now, David goes back to what he's comfortable with. David knew how to use a sling. So he goes to the brook and gets five stones. Now, there's a lot of conjecture here about why David got five stones. Uh, One view is that uh, David knew that Goliath had some brothers. So he got one for Goliath and one for his brothers. Maybe. We don't know that from the text, but that may be the case. I've heard preachers preach this text, and they'll apply some certain meaning to each of the five stones. I don't think we can go there (laughs) based upon the text. All we know is that David's going to fight and he gets five stones. Maybe because he thought, if I miss with the first one, I have another one to to sling. All right? 
But notice that David goes to fight with what he's comfortable with, with what he's good at. And if we're going to fight for victory and seek victory in our Christian lives, we need to learn to apply our skill and our gifting in the fight. See, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has given you a a spiritual gift. Based on 1 Corinthians 12, if you're a follower of Christ, God is giving you something with which to serve Him. So your role is to find out how He's gifted you, what you're skillful at, how God blesses you, and then you apply that in the fight. Right? And we all have different spiritual gifts. And it takes all of our spiritual gifts to push back the darkness and make a difference in the world. And so, fight the way that God has wired you. Fight according to your skill set. Fight according to your giftedness. And however God has, has gifted you, use it. Use it for God's glory. Secondly, I want you to see that David was proactive, not reactive in the fight. He didn't just stand there and wait for Goliath to come fight him. He approached the Philistine. He approached the giant. This is so important. So important. We've got to learn in our, in our church. We've got to learn in our marriages, in our, in our families. We've got to learn to not simply react to the attacks of the enemy. We've got to be ready. And we've got to be taking the fight to him. And I don't think that's overstating the case at all. Instead of just waiting for Satan to wreak his havoc and then pick up the pieces, how about teaching your kids to fight? And how about fighting proactively for your marriage? How about fighting for your church to go in the, the, the right direction and make a difference for the glory of God? We have to be proactive. Because I can guarantee you, Satan wants to destroy you. Are you proactively serving Jesus? Are you proactively loving Jesus? Are you proactively prioritizing Jesus in your life? If we're going to seek the victory, we've got to be proactive, not just reactive. There's a second principle here concerning victory. We see the victory sought, but secondly, we see the victory speech. I like this. The victory speech. Now, here's what's significant about that victory speech. David gave the victory speech before the actual battle. I like that. Look what happens in verse 41. As David approaches the Philistine, it says, The Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Pretty bold words, right? This is David. He said, listen, I'm not going to beat you. I'm going to take your head off of your body. And he's giving this victory speech before any proverbial punches had been thrown. He gives it on the front end of the battle. This speaks of his confidence in the Lord. 
David could give a victory speech because he knew who God was. And he had confidence in God's power in his life. And so listen, here's what we learn from that. We learn that you and I need to learn to fight confidently in the Lord. Now that means at least three things in our lives. First of all, it means that we need to remember who he is. We need to remember who God is. God is all-powerful. The theological word is omnipotent. He possesses all power. There's none higher or greater than him. None more powerful than him. The Bible says all power belongs to the Lord. He is God Almighty. He is sovereign. He is on his throne. He's calling the shots. And when we fight for victory, we need to remember that God is God. And remember we said last week, if you have a living God, that changes everything. David knew he had a living God. We're going to fight, and, and it looks uneven from an earthly perspective, but I've got God on my side. He remembered who God was. Secondly, we need to remember who we are in Christ. The Bible says that if you are a follower of Christ, that you are in the hands of God, and nothing can snatch you out of his hands. You are secure in your relationship with God. He's your God. He's your Father. You're his child. That will never change. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Remember, as you fight, remember who you are in Christ. Remember you are a child of God. That matters. That matters. Sometimes we we shrink back in fear and terror because we forget that we are a child of the King. We forget that we are children of the living God. We are in His hands. Remember who you are in Christ. And then third, remember the final outcome. Is life tough? You better believe it. You better believe it. Do we see Satan wreaking havoc? Oh, absolutely. Do we stumble and fall? Yes. But can I tell you this? When it's all said and done and the dust settles on human history, God wins. God wins. If you are in Christ, you are on the winning team. So fight with that confidence. I'm not fighting for victory. I've already won the victory in Christ. Remember The final outcome. And so based upon his confidence, David gives a victory speech before the fight. And then third, I want you to see the victory defined. The victory defined. What is victory, Wade? How do we know if we've won a victory? What does victory look like? Well, look at David's definition of victory. This is so good. Look what he says in verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. David's definition of victory is twofold. And it's not just beating Goliath. That's not victory for him. David's definition of victory is this, that all the earth may know of the true God. 
Why does David want to fight Goliath? I mean, he could just go back to the sheepfold, right? What, what's the big deal? Look in verse 46. He said, I'm going to cut off your head. I'm going to beat you so that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. David's concern is not glory in a, in a victory over the giant. His concern is the glory of God. He wants people to understand that, that Israel has a living God. That God is real and the true God resides with his people. He wanted all the earth, all the surrounding nations to hear of the great God that had given him victory over a giant. That's his desire. Secondly, his definition of victory was that all God's people may know how battles are won. Look in verse 47. He says, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. What's he saying here? He's saying, I want people to understand that, that God doesn't win battles based upon human ingenuity and weaponry and strength of numbers, that God fights differently than that. God doesn't need the ingenuity or the manpower that we can give him. God is God. As the Bible says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And David, listen to me, David wanted the people of Israel to trust in God. He wanted, to, he wanted them to see God give him victory so they would trust God more and stop trying to fight battles in their own strength. He had a desire that all God's people would know how battles are won. You see, David's desire was for God's fame. In David's thought process, he was thinking, I don't want people to see this or hear this and think, David is a great warrior. I want people to see this or hear this and say, David has a great God. You see the difference there? David has a great God. And so wait, what's victory? How do we know if we've won the victory? Victory for us is that the Lord gets more glory. That's victory. That whatever God does, he does it in such a way that he gets glory, that he gives us godly marriages, godly homes, passionate, Christ-centered lives, a church on fire with the gospel, so that people will look at our lives and see beyond our lives to the God who's doing it all. We want to see victories won so God gets more glory. That's the victory defined. And oh, how we've been praying and asking God to do great things. We had this revival time set aside to just focus upon the Lord. And we're asking God to do some stuff. We really are. I mean, whether you know it or not, you have people that have been praying for you. Fervently. And we're asking God to do some stuff. And we want God to do, do something in such a way that there's no mistaking that it's God at work. That people see a touch of the supernatural on our lives and a touch of the supernatural on our homes and the touch of the supernatural on our church. Not so that we get glory, but so that he gets the glory. That's David's definition of victory. Fourth, I want you to see the victory won. The victory won. Now notice there are 47 verses of buildup in this chapter. Now, I want to show you how many verses are given to the actual battle. It's almost funny. Look what ha happens in verse 48. 
Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took it from, from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead so that, that, so that he fell on his face to the ground. Two verses is over. 47 verses of build-up and then two verses is over. This reminded me back in... Uh, Back years ago when Mike Tyson was the big up-and-coming boxer. I don't know if you remember Mike Tyson. But they have all this build-up about who was fighting. And then you get in the ring and beat a guy in like 20 seconds. You're like, okay, that, that match is over. So what's happening here. All this build-up, all this, all this anticipation, and, and, and two verses is over. David gets a, a, a stone, puts it in a sling, lets it go, and the stone finds its mark. You see, from God's perspective, don't miss this. This is what we talked about last week. Goliath was the underdog. Not David. Goliath was the underdog. And God conquered Goliath and gave David a great victory. I love this quote from Ralph Klein. He writes, David's single stone found its way through the Philistines' defense systems to his one vulnerable spot. The reader is to recognize that this is no lucky shot, but its accuracy comes from Yahweh's hand. That's what the narrative is, is, is pointing us to. It's not a lucky shot. This is God guiding the stone right to where it needed to go. We see God give David the victory. God was gracious to David. If David would have faced Goliath in his own strength, he would have been decimated. He would have been destroyed. He would have been crushed. But God showed up. Amen? And here's what we need to learn from that. When we see victory in our lives, when we see progress in our lives, it's all of God's grace. It's all God's grace. It's not because you're good or I'm good or the church is good. If, if, if some things happen in our lives that are good, it's because of God's grace operative in us. You've heard me say this before. If you ever see anything good coming out of my life, anything good, it's not because weight is good. It's because God is good, and he has given me his grace. And if I ever see anything good come out of your life, it's not because you're good. It's not because you have it all figured out. If there's anything good coming out of your life, it's because of God's grace. Any victory in our lives should instantly be attributed to God. God's grace. The victory won by God's grace. Let me give you a fifth principle and we'll be through. About victory. We've seen the victory sought. We've seen the victory speech. We've seen the victory defined. We've seen the victory won. And fifth and last, we see the victory aftermath. What happens next? Well, two things. First of all, God's enemies were shaken. Look what happens in verse 50. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Cut off his head with, his own, with Goliath's own sword. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, what happened? They fled in terror. Someone had, had, had bested their champion. And so God's enemies were shaken. Uh-oh, God's on the move. We better get out of here. But not only were God's enemies shaken, God's people were encouraged. Look what happens in verse 52. The men of Israel 
God's chosen people, the men of Israel and Judah, arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the, and, and the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sharaim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he had put his weapons in his tent. What happens here? The Israelites see Goliath defeated by David, and they all of a sudden get this boldness, right? And they start to attack the Philistines and have a rousing victory over the Philistine army. God's enemies were shaken. God's people were encouraged. Now let me tell you this. Now, I didn't, this isn't in your notes. You can jot this phrase down. When other people see God give you victory, it may be the encouragement they need to fight. Let me say it again. When other people see God give you victory, it may be the encouragement that they need to fight. In other words, if they see God doing great things in your marriage, it may encourage them to fight for their marriage. Right? That may be the encouragement they need to fight for their marriage. And, I, and I, I'm asking God, we're asking God to do something at our church, and in our lives. That's so great, listen, that's so great that others will be encouraged and God's enemies will be discouraged. What if God did something so great in your family and so great in your church that the enemies of God were thinking, man, we don't stand a chance. Wouldn't that be great? The victory aftermath. Let me tell you about a particular victory that God, God won in a nation in the aftermath of that victory. In 1904-1905, there was a great revival in Wales, United Kingdom. And this small country was, before this time, filled with spiritual apathy, spiritual malaise. And, and God just showed up, and there was a mighty outpouring of His Spirit in Wales. You know how it all started, by the way? The, the, the entire revival started when a teenage girl stood up at a youth meeting. And she said this. She said, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. And there's something about that moment that God chose just to move and get people's attention. And that revival spread into the churches, into the nation. And for two years, there was a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God in Wales. Talk about victory. I mean, God was... was Showing his greatness in Wales. It was a victory of revival. Now, what was the aftermath of that victory? What did Wales look like following the revival? Well, let me give you some insight. First of all, countless numbers were saved. They didn't keep detailed records, but a conservative estimate says that 150,000 people were converted in that time period. Let me just ask you this question. If 150,000 folks were saved in America, you think that would make a difference? You better believe it would. I mean, that would change things. It would shake our nation. We had 150,000 people swept into the kingdom. Also, the, the nation became again a God-fearing nation. 
the nation became serious about God and began to fear Him again as a nation. Think our nation needs to fear God again? You better believe it. And what if God did something so powerful, so dramatic, He shook our nation to such a degree that we began to fear Him again? The bars became almost empty. Men and women who used to waste their money in getting drunk were now saving it, giving it to help their churches, buying clothes and food for their families. Not only drunkenness, but stealing and other offenses grew less and less so that often a magistrate would come to court and found there were no cases to try. No one was in court. There was no, there was no crime being committed. I thought this was interesting. Men whose language had been filthy learned to talk purely. Wales had a, a thriving a coal industry. They would go into the mines. And, and so many coal workers were saved that their language changed. And history records that their ponies they would use to go down the mines and then pull coal out. They called them pit ponies. Their, their ponies didn't know how to respond. They were so used to, to uh, responding to commands filled with cursing that when there was no cursing, the ponies didn't know what to do. They just stood there. God had dramatically changed that nation. One quote says, The dark tunnels underground in the mines echoed with the sounds and prayer of hymns instead of oaths and nasty jokes and gossip. People had been careless about paying their bills or paying back money. They had borrowed, paid up all they owed. People had not been friends for a long time because of something that had happened in their past, forgot their quarrels, and were happy together again. And on and on and on. Wait, what, what was happening in Wales? Listen, it was the aftermath of victory. When God moves in power, when God does something supernatural and dramatic, there will be implications and repercussions of that in the days to follow. That's what happened in Wales. And oh, I would love for something like that to happen in my life. How about you? It happened in my church. It happened in my community. Oh, I want God to do that again. How about you? I really do. There's nothing magical about scheduling services and putting on your calendar and saying we're going to have revival services. There's nothing magical about that. But we're saying to God, God, we're setting aside this time because we know we need you and we're desperate for you and we're building space into our lives for you to work. So here we are. God, would you do something? Would you give us victory after victory after victory after victory? By your grace and for your glory.